Hello, and welcome to this week's episode on the adaptation of the first part of J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, The Hobbit, as the screenplay to The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, the first part of the three-part adaptation directed by Peter Jackson. Once again, I'm going to be joined by a special guest, Tommy Savoya, who I'll have the pleasure of introducing to you shortly. We talk in detail about differences and techniques used for adapting The Hobbit for the screen, in particular as a prequel to Jackson's highly successful Lord of the Rings trilogy, and we share some thoughts about what makes the characters so iconic, as well as breaking down the key themes and ideas brought forward by the adaptation. Thanks again for continuing to listen to the show. I really appreciate all of your support, and I sincerely hope that you enjoy this particular episode. I do envision returning to the rest of the Hobbit films and the other Lord of the Rings films in a future series for perspectives on Tolkien. But for now, let's just see how you enjoy the first part. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell and I'm joined this week by a special guest, Tommy Savoya of the Cube Command podcast. Tommy is a video game and fantasy enthusiast and we're really glad to have him on the show today. Well, William, I'm glad to be here. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, which is a fantasy film directed by Peter Jackson and screenwritten by Fran Walsh, Philippe Boyens, Peter Jackson, and Guillermo del Toro. And it's an adaptation of the first half of The Hobbit, a fantasy book written by J.R.R. Tolkien. It almost feels to me like The Hobbit needs no introduction because it is such a well-known franchise, but in another sense, it's also something that perhaps movie fans would only be aware of the specific adaptations of the films and are not entirely familiar with the books they came from. So perhaps we can begin just starting out with, with what the book actually is and why that project would have been interesting as a follow-up to The Lord of the Rings. Well, The, the Hobbit itself is one book, The Lord of the Rings being its own book trilogy. One book for the record, which is shorter than any of the Lord of the Rings books individually. Interestingly enough, it's the second trilogy that Peter Jackson directed, the first one being the Lord of the Rings. So uh, me being introduced to The Hobbit some odd years back, I had to get it through my mind first that these movings were supposed to be made after the Lord of the Rings, but chronologically take place before it. Yeah, so in, in terms of Tolkien, he he wrote this essentially as a, a children's book, and he said that it came to him much later that the world he'd been writing about and, and the characters that he had created actually were Middle-earth. This story was taking place in Middle-earth, and then that kind of framed what The Lord of the Rings then became. And what we actually have in The Lord of the Rings, the film series, is I remember quite clearly in the original trilogy that they cover material from The Hobbit, such as Bilbo finding the ring and meeting Gollum, because it was necessary to explain that part of the story to the audience that was just maybe experiencing those those stories for the first time in the cinema. So you do have this interesting fact that Bilbo is portrayed by two different actors in the film series. You have Martin Freeman, who was cast for the role in The Hobbit, and you have Sir Ian Holm as the Bilbo in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and there were actually some scenes filmed of him 
as a younger man in that original trilogy, which theoretically you could probably switch out nowadays with the footage from The Hobbit. Yeah, and they did actually go back and include Ian Holmes in the Hobbit trilogy. They added in a few scenes to kind of connect it to Lord of the Rings because audiences at the time were fresh off Lord of the Rings and they needed something familiar to hook them into this new Hobbit trilogy. And they used Ian Holm to anchor the audience into this new trilogy. Also, he, They also used Elijah Wood's uh, Frodo as well to bring some familiarity to them. I'm just going to begin by giving our listener um, a sense of where The Hobbit came from. So the, the legendary story of its creation is that J.R.R. Tolkien was grading papers one day as his, uh, his role as a uh, professor. And he said he found one of the papers that he'd been given had a spare sheet in it that was blank. And just out of nowhere, he wrote down this sentence, which became iconic, which was, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And it was just this spontaneous moment of creation. And the way that Tolkien explained what that meant to him and how his process as a writer functioned was that he was surprised to hear a word like hobbit. And as someone who was highly interested in the history of language, of linguistics, etymologies, he said, okay, well, now my role is to find out what a hobbit is. I've created it. Now I need to know what it is. And apparently a lot of his process in writing the book, The Hobbit, was simply trying to explore the concept of what a hobbit was. There's a very brilliant little book that I discovered recently. It's called The Hobbit Companion by David Day. And it's essentially just a book of etymologies of a lot of the characters, like where the historical roots of their names come from. So I'll be bringing that up again, I think, on today's episode, because it's very interesting to see how Tolkien's mind worked in that sense in in trying to navigate what he believed were the, the roots of each of the names and then created the characters as a result of how they were named. To him, names were hugely important in terms of defining what things were. Right. And he really goes in depth with these things. There are people who have written encyclopedias and Wikipedias and all these other pedias based on uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's work. And reading the books, you can tell that he really put a lot of thought into the world building and the characters and the the geography of the land itself. And Peter Jackson did his best to translate that into a visual form for film. You can tell a lot of the sweeping shots and the big epic proportions in his movies is him doing his best to translate what Tolkien wrote into something that the audience can soak in visually. Tolkien certainly was not a person who understood filmmaking. He he was very cautious of it. He had grown up in a time where filmmaking was very rudimentary, though it had evolved quite strongly as an art form in the 20s, 30s, going into the 40s, color had been invented and was becoming increasingly popular in cinema. But still, the idea of the kind of special effects that we see in Peter Jackson's trilogy, the prosthetics, the camera trickery to to have dwarves and hobbits and elves and humans at different proportions occupying the same space on the screen, this this was all essentially impossible, if not highly experimental at the time that Tolkien was writing. So to him, the idea of this ever becoming a film was 
was quite unlikely. I believe he did dabble with the idea of the Lord of the Rings having an adaptation in the 50s, which he then read the screenplay of and essentially said that they had completely missed the point of what his work was about. And Tolkien is a great reminder for us as a writer of where priorities can lie. Even though he created these really detailed fantasy worlds, he was always interested in story and what it said about us as human beings. And that really came from his exposure to the ancient myths of the Germanic peoples, the Icelandic, the Vikings, and the Anglo-Saxons, and the Celts. He really, really loved these old myths. He wrote a beautiful translation of Beowulf, and a lot of his work was in response to that, in believing that because England had lost so much of its written records of its mythology, that he wanted to recreate that from for England. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, Tommy, is because we've grown up in very different circumstances in a way. I grew up in a small rural village in England, and to me, Bag End was kind of like my grandfather's house, and seeing the downs and the sun setting over them in this kind of idyllic English countryside with with just sheep and and birds flying overhead and everything like that. To me, that really felt like the Shire. But it, to me, it's really interesting how, even though a lot of that experience is going away for people now with the way that the countryside is changing, that to me, it's so fascinating that Tolkien resonates with people all around the world in completely different generations, completely different circumstances. So I'd like you to just give me an overview, maybe your just some of your thoughts on why his fantasy world appeals to you. Well, um, myself, I grew up a lot on the East Coast of the United States, so the suburbs are where I spend most of my days. But I, I haven't had the the opportunity to really live in these kinds of wide sweeping areas filled with countryside with not a skyscraper to be seen in sight. So in a sense, and I speak probably mostly for my generation as well, Tolkien represents sort of a an escape from the busy day-to-day mundane lives that we sometimes experience because his world is this, well, fantasy, imaginary world that has, it feels like you live in it. He has, he's developed these people, these races, these towns, these intricate histories that are all woven together. You feel like you could step inside of it and become a part of it yourself. And like I said, it's an escape. It's something to sink your teeth into and kind of melt away into for a while as you learn about it. I haven't even scratched the surface of a lot of the the lore of Middle-earth. It just goes to show that his work is still alive today. Absolutely. He is now the founding father of fantasy in, in some sense. Uh, George R.R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones talks extensively about how much of an influence Tolkien was on him and most other fantasy writers, I believe. It's, it's almost unavoidable to be inheriting Tolkien's legacy. But the wonderful thing about it is that he really had planned it for very different purposes than what it's being used for today. He was planning it often as stories he wanted to tell his children, stories he, he wanted to create just for the fun of creating them. And as I said, this exploration of the meaning of words, the meaning of symbols and recurring icons in epic mythology and all of these things. He really was just an explorer at heart who was 
who was reporting on what he found in the world of imagination, which I guess is essentially what allows us to connect with it so well, is because we all have that inner world of imagination. Probably the more introverted of us are more aware of it than the extroverts, but it's, it's always there for everyone. And you can really go down some rabbit holes if you ever look up psychoanalytical research on on The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It's been written extensively about. And um, my intention for the podcast is to get through these films, the six films, the, the three Hobbit adaptations and the three Lord of the Rings, and essentially do a series of perspectives on Tolkien. And I thought, how better to start it than with someone who's from the very start of this new generation that the the 21st rewrite represents which is films that came out after the year 2000 because you were you were born in the year 2000 right uh i was actually born uh three months before 2000 hit so by technicality i'm a 90s kid at my heart i guess i'm more of a uh, (laughs) 2000s kid yeah yeah same thing for me i was born in uh 89 so technically the Berlin Wall was still up. Communism was still around, but obviously I was um, completely unaware of it when I was born. Yeah. <laughs> I was introduced to the whole Middle Earth world by my dad. It was just something that I hadn't got around to looking to before, but I was always kind of intrigued by because I would always see it, you know, glimpses of it here and there, especially when they were marketing for the movie. And I'd see the books on the shelves and they were going into the bookstore or the library. I was always kind of intrigued by it because there were there were these big giant books and I I wanted to learn more of it as much as I could. The yeah, the problem is Tolkien is he's very unforgiving. The Hobbit is a great introduction and was aimed primarily at children, which makes it accessible for everyone, essentially. But the Lord of the Rings is is certainly aimed at a more mature audience who would understand the depth of his mythology and more of the references that he was trying to make, although a lot of that would be probably lost on audiences today unless they're willing to go and research more about it. But even still, I think The Hobbit is, if someone is unfamiliar with Tolkien or has only seen the films, uh, The Hobbit is certainly the best place to, to start reading. Yeah, and I have... Um, I actually gotten a glimpse of his lengthier writing style in the sense that he writes it very much like a uh, history encyclopedia where let's say he describes a battle. He doesn't go too into detail of what actually transpired in the battle itself. He summarizes it and goes on to the next important point. He doesn't waste time giving us the, and then this guy stabbed this guy and whatever. He gives us what we need to know about the world and then goes, jumps to the next point and then connects it to the next point and then gives us a little history about this next character. It, it's a lot to unpack, I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I think especially for readers who are more familiar with the way that story is told cinematically and how bestsellers are written nowadays, we're expecting a lot more detail in the action lines. We're expecting to read about these great big battle sequences And Tolkien was always quite swift to gloss over those because he was writing in this form that is more common in epic, that if you read the Odyssey or the Iliad, if you read Beowulf, you will get these long paragraphs about what the mood was like. These oral storytellers were talking to paint a picture in their audience's mind, and it just 
didn't translate when you were telling stories in this in this form to be describing every swing of the axe and every blow of a shield and everything like that. But what did set the mood was this, the sense of tension, the sense of the constant danger over the hill, but the monsters that could be out there waiting for you, and what these heroes were like, what they wore, what they talked like, how they moved. Those kind of things are exactly what Tolkien likes to share with us. And so as a screenwriter, or a group of screenwriters in the case of uh, Peter Jackson's team, the whole purpose became, how do we make this cinematic? How do we translate to the screen these ideas that he's he's just dropped in a battle which lasts for about three sentences, and then he goes on to describe the wilderness for three pages. So you're forced into this detective work, I think, as a screenwriter, in terms of figuring out where is the action at the heart of this story? Where is the stuff that will make the big showpieces, the big blockbuster moments? And arguably, this story could be told in a very different fashion. Peter Jackson's take is just one of many, and potentially as uh, as the Tolkien estate starts loosening up its grip on its ownership of the Tolkien material, as we're seeing with this Hammerson series that's coming out, we probably will get many different versions of Middle-earth. Certainly in the video game world, you already have the Shadow of Mordor type, where there is this exploration of the world that no longer has any bearing on what Tolkien had written about as an original story. New stories are being created within the the world of the franchise. Right. And as a franchise, it's it's still growing, but the actual heart of it, I do believe, is still in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and the, the ones that he personally chose to release and create himself. I, I think in terms of translation to the movies that Peter Jackson was responsible for, he had to put more effort into not just visually, but in terms of dialogue, fleshing out a lot of the parts that Tolkien chose not to, but could not be translated to film the same way that Tolkien wrote it down on paper. Prime example, I suppose, would be the dwarves. Because in my experience with the book, the dwarves themselves did not stand out as much. Not even Thorin felt as big to the first half of the book as he is in An Unexpected Journey. The dwarves themselves were given their own, well, of course, they had their uh, an actor playing each character, but they all had their own dialogue that was added to the film and their own mannerisms, their own way of talking, their own different clothes and swords that they used. And Peter Jackson had to put a lot more effort into just fleshing out the 13 dwarves than Tolkien initially thought was important at the time. Yeah, exactly. Because once you're in the visual space, the idea is how do you make this many characters stand out and be recognizable? And one thing that Peter Jackson did with Weta Workshop, which is the, the big design studio, which is famous for all of these incredible character designs, is he, he really wanted to see, can you recognize this dwarf if you only see the silhouette? If they all stand out significantly enough that if you only looked at their shadow, you could recognize who it was, then we've got the right thing visually for the film. An audience can instantly recognize who is who amongst all of the action on the screen. Yeah, and that's that's a very important part. And it's one I'm glad he did because this added a lot more... I guess, levity to the film. Not to say that the book itself doesn't have levity. The book itself, at times, feels like it was written very tongue-in-cheek. 
But when you're making a movie that has people slice each other's guts open and decapitate goblins, I th- I think it's a it was a good choice for them to, at least in my eyes, to add this barbarity to the dwarves that I don't think was as accentuated in the book. There's a couple of things going on here. One is that they have already established via the Lord of the Rings what to expect for certain races uh, in the Tolkienian sense of races, the dwarves, the goblins, the orcs, the elves, the hobbits, the wizards, the humans. All of these different groups had an identity in the Lord of the Rings. And because The Hobbit is a children's book, certainly the elves, for example, come across as far more childish and playful than the very serious, somber, civilized, but isolated culture that we get with the Lord of the Rings version, which is this very secretive group of people who are very distrustful of the other groups that are in the world and very aloof, very isolated. In The Hobbit, the elves are singing and dancing and welcoming the the crew into Rivendell, which basically just doesn't happen in the film at all. Yeah, and I really can see the differences that he had to make. Uh, for example, Galadriel, I believe that's how you pronounce it, was the you know, the lady elf that was giving advice to Gandalf when they were welcomed to Rivendell. Wasn't in the book at all, but she was added to connect it to the previously filmed Lord of the Rings. Yeah, there's there's a sense that we'll also see as we get into the story in a in a moment that Peter Jackson did want to firmly establish this legacy between the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, establish for the audience very clearly that it's taking place in the same universe and essentially build on that fandom that existed for for the original trilogy because still film is a a money-making business ultimately and if you've got an existing fan base there, you want to invigorate them and get them to come back. So the introduction of Kate uh, Blanchett as Galadriel, Saruman, Christopher Lee makes an appearance again. Obviously, of course, we do have some characters which did reappear in the books. Elrond, Gollum, Bilbo Baggins, Gandalf. But then one of the most popular characters from The Lord of the Rings was was Gimli, the dwarf. And so suddenly Peter Jackson was faced, and the whole team that was working on on this this new trilogy, they were faced with this issue of, well, how do we make 13 of him and also make them unique, also make them memorable? And I think they did a fantastic job in the end of of establishing through dialogue, as you said, and through character design, that all of these are individuals and that you don't really confuse one with the other. You, Of course, you get lost because you've been introduced to so many at the same time at the beginning, but there's also a sense of knowing with time that you'll become familiar with them over the course of these three films. They added a little bit more plot importance to some of the dwarves. I believe they did give one of Gandalf's lines to Balin, where they're talking about Thorin's history. And, and it was to give them something to do so you could recognize them. I'm just wondering if we need to talk about anything more in terms of introduction or if we should just get stuck into the screenplay, because I think naturally we'll, we'll bring in our knowledge as we start to discuss it. So just in terms of adapting this book for the screen, they did take a completely different approach in terms of opening the story. 
as I already mentioned, The Hobbit starts with the famous line, In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. So that is exactly how the book begins, but for the film that's not how they chose to open it. That's not how they chose to introduce us to the story. You're right. Uh, a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. That line did not even come into the film until maybe the first eight to ten minutes. Uh, they spend the first bit of the movie uh, reintroducing the world of uh, Middle Earth. And they did it by establishing the plot that we're going to be dealing with for the next nine hours, which is right into the story about the dwarves and the lonely mountain and losing the Arkenstone. And I understand why they did it. It was to draw the audience in with something exciting, something they can sink their teeth into and say, okay, I can get down with this plot for the next three hours. And then right after that, it still doesn't go into the book. It then introduces Bilbo, the Bilbo Baggins we are familiar with, once again, talking to Frodo about his farewell party. And and then right after that, it goes right into the beginning of The Hobbit. So he spends some time reintroducing, refreshing the audience's mind, what the characters are, what their deal is, and then giving us the backstory for the dwarves, because the dwarves are what come next. I think it is an effective strategy. There is always a case with adaptations of books where the question really comes up constantly, time and time again. As a writer, you are asking yourself, am I fully adapting the spirit of the work that was originally written? And I think our trust as an audience with the Hobbit series is that we understand because of Peter Jackson's position as the director of the Lord of the Rings, that we already know that we're in safe hands. We know we're dealing with someone who does care about the spirit of the books. Even though he is an action director, he's a blockbuster director, he's someone who also understands that language of reaching every person in the cinema, of reaching people who are just flicking through the TV years later on Christmas Day trying to find something to watch and it's, oh, The Lord of the Rings is on again. I'm going to stick with that because I know I like that. He really sets out to to show you not only the spirit of the story, but also the action pieces. And so by stepping back and opening the film with a big action sequence, we get to throw the audience a little bit and have them questioning how such a difficult dilemma will be resolved. How will these characters overcome such a terrible obstacle as this huge dragon which can burn entire towns down with its breath? Yeah, the smog introduction is... its It was a little unexpected if you read the book first because you weren't expecting to see... Uh, you're expecting to see the little hobbit hole with all the hobbits and doing their thing. Not the big dragon taking over the Lonely Mountain. And I, I guess in a sense, it, it took sort of the same path that Pixar's Toy Story 2 did, which was instead of reintroducing you to the characters you know and love, they throw you for a loop and have this big action sequence and then throw you back into the nice warm world of the, the characters you had just left. And it gives the audience a sense of relief and it, it makes them receive the characters even warmer than they would have. Because when he jumps right back into the hobbit hole after the smog's takeover of the mountain, he makes sure to throw in those lines of Bilbo talking to Frodo about, oh, my farewell party. And 
gives a little hint of the ring. He wants to tell you where this this is placed on the uh, Middle Earth timeline. And it's actually a, a strong parallel with the original Lord of the Rings trilogy as well, in that the books open quite closely following uh, Bilbo's birthday party coming up. And in the films, there's a large dump of information right at the very beginning, which has been is so iconic now that it's actually being parodied in many other TV shows and other forms of visual media because it's it is so iconic that that voiceover I think it's Kate Blanchard that reads it in in the original Lord of the Rings film where essentially the entire history of the ring is recounted for us as an audience so again we know what the ring symbolizes interestingly I think the writers were confident that we knew by this point what the ring represented and there isn't a foreshadowing of the fact that Bilbo is going to encounter the ring on this journey and they actually focus on the mountain and the dwarves objective because I think it's quite clear to us as an audience we're very familiar with Bilbo by this point we don't need to be told what his his eventual motivation is going to be whereas with the dwarves and Gandalf's adventure that is where we need the clarity we need to know this is a different story and this is what the aims and objectives were for for that team when they set out I, I think you're right because they don't really focus on the ring much at all in this trilogy. The ring is essentially inconsequential to the overall story. It's essentially just a how Bilbo ended up getting out of these situations. Uh, like the title suggests, an unexpected journey. I mean, what is a journey? The journey is the substance and what you experience getting there and not not necessarily the destination itself. So I do remember as a young reader when The Fellowship of the Ring was coming out and that was 2001, so I would have been about 11 or 12 years old and I had read The Hobbit many times as a child. It had been one of my favorite books and suddenly it was time for me to try and tackle this huge, imposing, much more complicated story, which was certainly very challenging for me at that age because I do feel that The Lord of the Rings is aimed at a much older audience. Probably 16, 17, 18 would probably be the age, I think, that readers are more capable of grasping what it's really about. It came as such a shock to me as a young reader that The Ring was not what it had been at all in The Hobbit, that in The Hobbit it really was this fun plaything. It was this magic trick it was this lifesaver, it was this great tool that Bilbo had that allowed him to to become superhuman in a way, to become special, to be able to disappear and and then do things that would be impossible in the real world without it. Suddenly the ring became this thing that was a danger to everyone, that had to be destroyed, that even though it was offering this benefit of of disappearing it was actually transporting Frodo into the world where he could be found by the Nazgul that were after him and trying to 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 kill him so in that sense it, that did come as a huge surprise to me i think that that is one of the most complicated parts for the writers of these these new films to to deal with is the legacy of what the ring will become and what it really meant in terms of this story and I think that's very evident in the visual format, in the way it's written in the screenplay, in terms of how Bilbo does get transported to this 
this unusual world where everything is in grayscale and things are kind of blurry and different, there's a sense he is in a different world. And that doesn't really come across in in the book The Hobbit at all. It really is this simple magic trick where he puts a ring on and it gives him this extra power. You know, that wasn't something I initially thought about was how the ring is treated so much differently in this new medium because, um, as we mentioned before, The Lord of the Rings was filmed before The Hobbit. So the the ring was already established as this this item of grave importance and also danger. When you make a trilogy of a book that came before it and treat it as a lighter item, you can't you can't treat it the same way the book did. You have to treat it like the same item that the audience remembers it as. You have to treat it with the same weight, I suppose, because in the book, you're right. It's it it's not. It's treated as a, a toy, a, something that Bilbo can use whenever he wants, and there's no consequences. When they put it in the movie that already had an established purpose for the ring, they had to to keep consistency. They had to use the same effects and the same uh, uh, story weight that the ring had, which is why in the movie in in the Hobbit, uh, he's transported to that grayscale world, and as a as a movie as a standalone movie i feel like the ring doesn't do anything for the story in in the unexpected journey as a whole as a whole six movie saga yeah that's it's a great way of fleshing out how bilbo got the ring but in terms of the movie i feel like it would wouldn't have changed the story at all if they had kept it consistent with how the book tells it because i i do see how the ring is in a sense a metaphor for the real world and Bilbo's journey into it. Because when he starts off, he's in the Shire, a nice safe haven. And as he goes farther into this, uh, this adventure, he learns of the dangers and the evil that's actually in the world. And it's a great metaphor for someone stepping out of their comfort zone and learning how to survive in the real world. Cause the ring itself, like you said, it, it, it looks like a great, thing to have on the outside but on the inside it makes you susceptible to many dangers and um i th- i i guess it uh it just looks like a metaphor to me to how the world works yeah if there is any foreshadowing in the book of what the ring is capable of it is only in the character of Gollum, and at the same time it's still not that clear i think you can read through that story and just see it as as a tale of obsession, but the actual reasoning behind why the ring is so dangerous and why it has transformed Smeagol into Gollum is not the story that the book The Hobbit is trying to tell. It's just the original place in which that story came to Tolkien, and then he develops it later on in The Lord of the Rings, which really was written much later than The Hobbit, and it's it's quite usual, I think, for, for authors to do that, to discover ideas hidden within their own work later on and choose to with more maturity or more hindsight to choose to go and explore that story that they they didn't really notice that the story was entirely there i do think that the progression from the hobbit to the lord of the rings in tolkien's time it could be his way of showing the audience uh, or appreciating that the audience is getting older and can appreciate and understand these deeper stories 
And like you said, uh, Gollum's story isn't really important to the Lord or to the to the Hobbit um, because it's fleshed out in Lord of the Rings, and because it, say someone just watched the Hobbit, the first Hobbit movie, I had no prior knowledge about Lord of the Rings or any of the books or any of the world, they wouldn't immediately make the connection that Gollum was once like Bilbo and became corrupted through use of the ring because they don't know how the ring works. And th- it would it would come across as just this greedy little creature who likes this shiny object he found that he doesn't really understand. Which is how he is in the book. So it is kind of yeah honest towards its source material in that sense as well. It's also quite clear that they expect most of their audience to know this stuff already. I would like to talk more about the Gollum scene, I think, when we get to it, but we're going to go chronologically through the story. The opening scene visually establishes a lot of the history of disagreement between elves and dwarves, and the screenplay likes to play up that tension, which isn't necessarily that strong in the book The Hobbit, but it is there. There is a sense that the dwarves and the elves do not get along, that they they disagree with each other, but but the screenplay really makes a, a big show of it. It has the elves come, and we see them, this is how visual screenwriting is done. You you see the elves in that place watching the mountain be taken over by the dragons and then choose to turn their backs on the dwarves. So you don't have to listen as much. You don't have to listen to the dialogue, which is the way that Tolkien likes to do it in his book. He, he likes a lot of exposition. He likes characters to sit down with each other and talk about the past and that just really doesn't always translate to screen. So so it's very clear, I think, in that opening scene how those conflicts are going to affect the characters in the future. And it also introduces this alternative enemy who's going to be the main antagonist, at least until they can get to the mountain and face the dragon, which is Azog, who basically doesn't play a big role in the book. But clearly, Peter Jackson and his writing team saw that as a possibility of drawing out some additional conflict. So Azog is basically written into most of the scenes in which the dwarves are just faced with challenges, whether it's wolves or goblins or other dangers, threats towards their lives. Yeah, when you have a character like Thorin, he is very, very important to the story, especially going into the last two movies. But in terms of the first half of the book, he did not have much to do. He was still the leader of the of the dwarves, but he acted as they did, which was as a group, at least to how I interpreted it. And when you have a character like Thorin, who's supposed to have this giant overarching story going into three movies, you can't leave him with nothing to do in the first installment, which is, I, I believe, which is why they created the the orc leader to oppose him because he needed something to channel his anger and his want for revenge toward in this first movie so we could set up his arc of his pride being his downfall. Yeah, when we talk about characters having stakes, having things that they can gain and that they can lose, it's very difficult with a character like Bilbo because even though he is an archetypal hero, He is a hero. He is someone who's taken away on this journey and forced to transform and forced to find all the strength within himself. But a lot of the time, it's not entirely clear why he is going on this trip. By having a character like Thorin who has this clear 
vengeance tale where he has lost his home, he's lost his family's wealth, the kingdom that he once ruled over has been reduced to something akin to the Israelites in under Moses in the Bible, that they're, they're just a wandering group of people with nowhere to live anymore. That, that gives us a sense of, okay, that's the balance that this story wants to restore in the world, that evil should not win, that the dragon shouldn't, shouldn't take over. I feel like there's some metaphorical elements to it as well, that the dwarves are essentially brought down by their own greed, by hoarding wealth so strongly. They are forced into this situation where they will be targeted by dragons. They haven't created a stable society that is balanced, that has, that has its own sources of food, that has its own self-sustaining level they're just accumulating wealth through their ownership of the mountain and then that obviously leads to their downfall because it makes them a target yeah in terms of the world they have a lot of vulnerability and i it is believable why they would be targeted and it really does tie into greed being the backbone of the entire saga of lord of the rings and and i guess in a sense, it does kind of work to foreshadow the Lord of the Rings because Bilbo sees firsthand, almost twice, the downfall of a civilization because of greed. And the ring itself is a, an object of greed. It's, that is the most powerful function that it has, aside from turning people invisible and allegedly, although we don't see so much of it in, in the films because it is well protected by the hobbits, the idea is that if the wrong people get their hands on the ring, it will give them powers beyond anyone's wildest imagination to cause damage, to cause hurt, to cause evil. And the obsession with this tiny little piece of gold is essentially the greed that's underlying so much of the story. And at the same time, Tolkien challenges us with this story. So essentially David Day wrote a little bit about the etymology of the characters in The Hobbit Companion. And in terms of the name Bilbo Baggins, he traces it back to the name Baggins coming from the Germanic word burger, which is essentially a, a bourgeois person, a middle-class person, someone with wealth, someone with money. And it, it comes from the word bag, meaning a money bag, a, a pack, a, a bundle. So Baggins is someone who accumulates wealth, accumulates security. He is, he's this safe person. But at the same time, a bagman is a burglar. He is someone who takes a bag with him and steals the wealth of other people as, as a thief. So there's kind of a joke in a lot of Tolkien's names of the characters, and that duality is in Bilbo's name. It's the fact that he's the typical middle-class Englishman who wants nothing to do with adventures and is completely comfortable in his home as long as he's got some money, but he also transforms into the burglar, into the, the thief who carries the bag and takes away the treasure of others. Bilbo working as the hero for the story, it's very refreshing to see someone who has this snarkiness about him. Uh, Martin Freeman does a phenomenal job portraying this character. I, I love how he creates the personality of Bilbo as 
not exactly wanting to be there, but dealing with it because he has to. And it, it creates a great balance with the barbaric tendencies of the dwarves. You know, as, as the story goes on, he does become the burglar that he was initially opposed to as the quote-unquote reluctant hero. And he does show a lot of growth throughout the movie. Um, just in the first movie alone, you can tell that he is no longer the same character that he was before. And him being the thief thematically does oppose the antagonists of the movie, which are those who hoard money and wealth. Yes, he, he's, a, he's a good thief. He's not someone who's thieving and preying on the weak. He's, he's always thieving in, in response to evil. Right. And so there, there certainly is a difference there between him being an outright thief who would be preying on innocent old ladies in the Shire, taking away their stuff. Instead, he is, he's a thief when it's suitable, when he's taking... The first time he's tempted to thieve in the book is, is with the trolls. He wants to prove himself as a burglar to try and impress the other dwarves and establish himself in the company. He ends up stealing Gollum's ring essentially by, by chance. Gollum had dropped it and he picks it up and keeps it. And then by the end, he is a thief. He's, he's willing to, to go to the mountain and risk his life to help the companionship of dwarves that he's he's going along with. Right, he does, in the movie, he does uh, very slowly grow into the role of the burglar. Uh, the, the book itself approaches it in a very different tone, whereas he, I, I believe in, it was in the beginning where he did initially become intrigued by the story of the dwarves in the mountain, where he he wanted to help them read the map and... And it wasn't until the the scene where he wakes up, Gandalf tells him, oh, they left without you. You got to go. And he's like, uh, okay. And then he goes there and becomes part of the company. The movie tackles this very differently, whereas he doesn't wait a long while while he's there. In the book, he, he stays there until, I, th- I think it was like second breakfast, as hobbits have, mm-hmm. um, until he decide, until Gandalf bursts in and tells him to get on his on his way. Um, in the movie, he gets up and he kind of looks around. And then immediately the next scene is him running to go on an adventure. In terms of screenwriting, I think it's always important where possible to show characters making decisions for themselves. And in that sense, Tolkien was not, he was not a film writer. He always wanted to have characters talk about things and make it very clear why they were making decisions. So he essentially does have Gandalf step in at that point and say, you should really go out and try and catch them. Whereas in the film, we respect Bilbo because he is choosing to go on this adventure. Right. And I find that kind of interesting because they flip-flop it in the scene where, like you mentioned before, with the trolls that had stolen the ponies. In the book, I believe he had gone of, of his own will or at least did not resist uh, sneaking up on the trolls, and he was more he was more on board with the idea. Whereas in the movie, he was essentially abandoned by Philly and Killy and left to fend for himself, and uh, with with nothing more than the clothes on his back against the trolls. And then that's when the dwarves come in and save him. I just find it interesting that they they did it one way in the movie, and that that was different from the book, and then they flipped it. 
There's also this duality to Bilbo Baggins' character, which is, again, conveyed in his name because Bilbo Baggins is his his real name, but he also has this other family heritage, which is the Tooks. Peregrine Pippin Took is a major character of The Lord of the Rings. There's a family relationship between the Tooks and the Bagginses, and the Took name itself reflects that sense of taking chances of taking those risks it's it's linked to this old norse name that relates back to thor thunder and excitement and and all of this stuff and so within him he's got that seed that can grow and blossom into something in terms of what he's got as a potential personality but but at the beginning it's all hidden you know he's he's cowardly he's afraid but like you said when the dwarves start talking about mountains and gold and treasures and dragons, suddenly he gets swept up in it. That took nature of his of his personality starts to shine through and he really gets excited about it. And I just love that element to his character. I think that is one of the reasons why, as an audience, we really connect with Bilbo. It's because we we love seeing that excitement in the characters up on the screen. We like seeing them get ready to take that risk and uh, and transform. I think there was a line pretty early in the film where Gandalf mentions having known Bilbo since he was young, and he did mention that Bilbo had always yearned for adventure and he was always running around the Shire looking for little bugs and animals and talking about elves and and dragons. And as Gandalf visits him, I want to assume 20 to 30 years later, he notices how Bilbo has changed into this more cowardly, very a mousy person who prefers to stay at home and sit on his porch and talk about how good of a day it is. And I, I want to say in a sense that Gandalf chose Bilbo and sent Bilbo on this adventure in a sense to save him from himself and rediscover his his childhood love of adventure. Because that was when, when he started talking to Bilbo and Bilbo was very, very uh, curt with him was when he decided, okay, this is the guy I want as the burglar. You have absolutely identified a really critical part of, of this story. It's that Bilbo always was that way. When he was a child, that's what he dreamed of. That's who he wanted to become. And he has slowly allowed himself and society to repress that part of him. And we always will carry that with us. And the longer that we we go on not exploring adventure, not not taking risks, not seeing the potential that's out there, the more we'll start to resent the gradual slipping away of life. And so, yes, Gandalf goes in and he saves him. He, he steps in and there's a brilliant quote from Gandalf in as it's written in the screenplay where he he is convincing Bilbo and he says, all good stories deserve embellishment. You'll have a tale or two of your own when you get back. And there's a sense that, yes, life is full of dangers and it's scary and there's all these risks and that it, the easiest thing is to turn away from it. But life also becomes the stories that we're going to tell. Stories are the things that transform us and that we become transformed by story as individuals. The, that's a huge part of psychotherapy in a way is that the way that people reevaluate their lives and start seeing, okay, that story I was telling myself for so long is it really true? Did, did I really, was I really such a, an awful person or was I really this unattractive? Or was I really this or that? You know, like people 
start questioning themselves. And Gandalf steps in and he really is the mentor. He reminds Bilbo, there's another side to you. And that side to you can go out and face anything. You'll be able to make it through the mountains. You'll be able to face the trolls. You'll be able to face the dragons. That is completely right. Gandalf is the the guide. And in order for Bilbo to learn on his own, there has to be those scenes where Gandalf is absent and those scenes where Bilbo is on his own, which is why um, in the later scene where he meets Gollum, that's where he starts to grow into his own character. And that's where he, that is his defining moment in the film. It's where he learns courage because it was right before they went to Rivendell and Gandalf hands Bilbo the the elven sword that glows blue when goblins are near. He tells him that courage is knowing when to take a life and when to spare one. Mm-hmm. And that is, that that's, I want to say that's the theme of the climax of the movie, is that line. It's certainly the choice. It's hard to translate it onto screen. The book makes a bigger show of it, but the fact that Bilbo chooses to spare Gollum's life has been described by many, many uh, critics as the crux of the story of defining who Bilbo actually was as a person is that he he had this opportunity to end Gollum's life and he felt sympathy for him. He he saw that Gollum had become who he was as a result of obsession. And I think a few minutes ago you mentioned duality as being important to Bilbo's character and that is very true because this entire movie Bilbo has been at war between the Took side and the Baggins side. When he was thinking of leaving the company, when they were uh, nestled in the mountain, he told him, I'm not a Took, I'm a Baggins. And Baggins stay at home. That was him doubting himself, but that was him believing that one side is allowed to exist at a time, which he found out was not true because I would believe that the Baggins side is the one that decided to spare Gollum, while the Took side was the side that led Bilbo to survive his encounter with Gollum and with the goblins. And that duality is what Bilbo discovers in that defining moment, that crux. Exactly. And that that goes back to Tolkien's initial belief, which is that names reveal everything. Names that we give ourselves reveal everything about who we are. And it, it becomes a conscious choice. Bilbo can see himself as a Baggins, or he can see himself as a Took. He initially chooses to just go along with what he's been telling himself for for his whole life. And then he starts to see there's more to me than just this name and this way of being and feeling like I'm always going to be that same person. One thing I really found interesting was uh, Martin Freeman. He He read the books. He said he had not read The Hobbit when he was younger. So unlike many people who probably had a familiarity with the, the Hobbit story from a young age, Martin Freeman was approaching it as, as a new role, as an actor who was unfamiliar with the, with the books. And he said he loved them and that they were very English. So he brought a lot of his Englishness and his awkwardness and his, his humor, which he had developed in, in The Office and in Sherlock, into the role of Bilbo Baggins. But he said also that he couldn't tell you what sort of character Bilbo is, except that he's profoundly transformed. And I actually feel that even though Martin Freeman might believe that about the role he was he was playing, 
and I think he does convey that really well on screen that you never really know which way things might go with Bilbo. He might freak out and, and try and protect himself one minute and he might find the courage inside himself the next. But I do think as an audience, we do always feel like we know Bilbo. His choices always make sense to us. And I think that's tied into the fact that he is such an archetypal hero and we relate so much to the potential with him and find it within ourselves. And I think it's important why Tolkien chose hobbits to be the center point of this universe is not only because they they're, it's more difficult for them to become corrupted by the One Ring, but because they are the perfect they're the perfect characters for us to, in a sense, insert ourselves into and think about. Okay, if we were in the situation, we would probably act as they do, because they're not the gruff warriors that the the men or the elves or the dwarves are. They're very down to earth and they're very they're more civilized than the other other civilizations ironically enough they're very british in the sense that what happens in the countryside in england is this is this establishment of these are the limits of my world it it extends for about 15 miles around these hills and valleys and that's where it ends and that all of the terrible things that happen they happen in these distant places whether it's the big cities of london and paris and berlin but out in the English countryside, you almost can forget all about that, about all the chaos in the world. So he was really making a connection to that. And I think he he obviously felt that as well as someone who had grown up in, in rural England and had a, a great fondness for it. And certainly when he was at Oxford, Oxford was a much smaller place than it is now. And still he had gone out. He'd gone to the First World War. He had experienced some of the chaos and catastrophe that existed beyond those frontiers and he was aware that it was always looming. The Hobbit was written in the lead up to World War II where there was this huge evil amassing on the frontiers of Britain as well in, in the form of Nazi Germany and, and fascist Italy. But he also was able to convey all of that in a universal way. He, he didn't reflect precisely what was happening in his time. He was more establishing Things have always been this way. Even in my favorite histories of the Anglo-Saxons, there were Viking raids all the time. There was always danger on the horizon. And the Hobbit is that, that creature who, who wants to stay safe, warm, and at home all of the time. But we love these remarkable Hobbits. We love Frodo. We love Bilbo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin. They're, they're those Hobbits that really go out and confront it all and, and uh, take on those challenges. That's very true. The hobbits are definitely the most important part, um, in my opinion, to the the whole story. For the Shire, he he wanted to make it more of a a homey place. That was where the comfort was, and leaving it symbolized leaving the comforts of home and seeing the real world for what it was, which was all this danger and all this war going on. I guess what makes Bilbo likable as a protagonist is that he's able to go into this world and experience all the horrors that it has to offer and still come back home and enjoy what he feels is important. It makes us appreciate him. He's almost like a soldier returning from war in a way. Right. That, that yes, all this stuff happens to him, but he has to go back and get on with life after that. And he becomes a good father figure to Frodo and... He always just holds on to that little secret, I, I think, and that opening scene where he's writing his 
his story, his memoir, which becomes The Hobbit, which in the uh, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit is called There and Back Again, which it's Bilbo's memoirs, essentially him, him leaving the truth, or at least he wants to call it the truth of his story for Frodo to read and know more about him. Right. I suppose in his own way, he wanted to tell Frodo what happened while being able to tell him in the most concise way possible in writing form. And also as an audience, it's it's fun for us because I can't imagine sitting down watching three hours of Bilbo telling a story to Frodo, you know, in their living room. I almost think it, it tells us more about Bilbo as a character in a way that he He's not willing to actually try and sit Frodo down and tell him. He he wants to do it in privacy. He wants to get it all out and write it down almost like a diary and then and then bestow it upon Frodo and say, here you go. This is everything I ever wanted to tell you. That pretty much encapsulates Bilbo's character. Words and his own academic way of expressing it. Because the words are what saves him in the movie. And sure, his sword does a lot of the fighting for him, but it is through his own intelligence that he proves himself to the dwarves and ultimately makes himself a part of their company. When we're kind of moving for, through the intro because this is such a long film. The first hour is considered the intro. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, it's a big screenplay. It's a lot of story. It's a lot of um, putting forward of ideas. But essentially what happens at the beginning is this. It's, it's a masterclass in establishing what a hero's journey is about. So we do get, we do get a sense of the world. We get a sense of what's at stake, what the characters want what the big objective is going to be. But that second half of the the introduction, so let's say the first, between the 30 minute to an hour mark of, of the film, really is about establishing the hero's journey. It's about having that character faced with all of this chaos and the people of the Shire really don't believe in dragons anymore. They don't believe in, in magic and all of these things. It's all, it's all distant to them. They've, they've established this very rural, laid-back way of life where they don't think about bad things anymore and he's he's made aware of this world outside and he's forced into a decision is he going to go along with these dwarves or is he going to stay at home and so the way that it's done in the screenplay and having Bilbo make that decision for himself not being persuaded by Gandalf as he is in the book I think that really is the setup for a hero's journey. You learn what a character is like in their normal day-to-day -day life, and then that moment of decision-making comes, and it's important that that character takes that decision for themselves. And I think consequences are important as well. In that same intro, after he makes the decision to run outside, you know, I'm going on an adventure, he is faced with those consequences of, you know, I don't get handkerchiefs out here. I have to use this guy's rag that he ripped from his shirt. But in, in the book, it actually says that Gandalf went back and came back with a bunch of handkerchiefs and food and, and whatnot. And I think that in the movie, like you said, they wanted to accentuate the hero's journey more by showing Bilbo that, yes, there are consequences to making this choice. And once you, once you made it, you have to stick with it. And you're not going to be 
essentially babysat by Gandalf. I, I think the same thing comes up in the tension with the dwarves. Eventually, Bilbo says to them, you're dwarves and you don't have a home. I do. And I want to get back to it. And again, they, it's tying into that tension of, is this a decision he really wants to make? Understanding that all of these comforts are gone and the book struggles because of Tolkien's um, idealism at times, he doesn't raise the stakes high enough for the characters. I feel that the book is a tough adaptation for a screenwriter because so many times there is just a, a falling back onto something that's easy. Whereas when you're trying to do this for film, you really want to make sure that you're making it seem like the character's faced with all of these impossible decisions and they're trying to navigate and pick the best decision given the hand that they've been dealt, which is a lot more engaging for an audience. And I, I think in the scene where he is uh, introduced to the dwarves and they're stealing all his food, we get a sense that Bilbo, he does have a resilient spirit about him, but he's not very good at expressing it, where he, he he's tapping on the shoulder quietly saying, hey, can you put that back? It makes it believable that later on in the movie, he's this character who can jump up and stab a wolf or an orc to protect Thorin. It's just in the beginning, we see where he starts with trying to find the courage to stand up to people that he feels is wronging him. Arguably, Gandalf knew this all along, that it would take something like that to to really convince him to to become that person. One thing I love about the books is that you do get, as in many novels, you get a sense of what characters are thinking. And obviously, it's very hard to convey that on screen without having some dialogue or some action that the character is actually taking. So... In those early scenes where the dwarves are basically taking over his house, Tolkien takes more time to express exactly what's going through Bilbo's mind as each step of the evening moves along. But I do really appreciate that Peter Jackson, in his direction of this, chose to honor the lighthearted nature of the book, to have the dwarves singing, playing around. There's so much of the comedy comes into this that just wouldn't be possible in a more serious film like The Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit enjoys that side of its source material and at the same time continues to gradually sprinkle into the writing different actions and lines of dialogue between the dwarves and Gandalf and Bilbo that really set up for us the expectations of is he really going to do this? What's at stake? How much danger is he going to be in? Does he really want to go and do this? Does he want to hang around with these dwarves of all people? The, the, the more ridiculous we see their behavior and their abuse of him taking over all his food and drinking all of his tea and everything. I, I guess in the terms of stakes, Peter Jackson wanted to set up the the weight of the journey that these these characters are about to embark in because he, he treats the key that Gandalf gives to Thorne with more more importance than the book does. In the book, they're like, okay, here's a key, by the way. Oh, thanks. In the movie, and especially because they can use camera angles and intense music and the specific lighting to put more importance on this key, uh, they run with it. And they use it as a way to visually and atmospherically tell Bilbo, uh, convey to Bilbo what he's about to do do i guess 
And because in the book, they, they set up a lot in the book, but they don't waste a lot of time doing so, or he doesn't waste a lot of time doing so. In the movie, uh, they definitely use the music to their advantage and also in a way to show us Bilbo's thought process through music and through how the tone of the music changes depending on what we see on Martin Freeman's face and what decisions we feel like Bilbo is making. Screenwriting offers so many different tools that just are not possible in novels and also as a uh, an alternative to the tools that are there in novels, such as having an inner dialogue for multiple characters, which often comes across as quite corny when it's done in film. The other thing that was really great about Tolkien as made him such a unique writer in a way was that he often saw beyond individual stories and saw saw the world as an accumulation of different stories that makes up the environment we live in knowing that many aspects of our lives have reference points in other stories and so he would fill his world with these stories and actually um the story about thorin and his his legacy his his kingdom is meant to just be at times in the book it's just there to explain who Thorin is. So I feel like Azog, the mention of those those battles, for example, is just there to give you a sense, okay, this guy's kind of a hero. He's he's a strong warrior. And in the film they really take that material and they say, let's make this the centerpiece of the attention. Let's not just have this as a backdrop. Let's make this the center of everything. So what it does is it does create this slight disbalance in the Hobbit, an unexpected journey as a film that sometimes I feel that it doesn't necessarily know which direction it's going in. At times it's very adult and it's high stakes and it's action and brutality. And then the next thing you've got the Goblin King singing to them all. <laughs> there's, ju there's just a tonal issue there at times, I feel, which is, is just because of the difficulty of adapting Tolkien's brand of oral storytelling, which was just done in this tradition where... He, he was emulating the times that people told their stories around a fireplace and everyone listened. It just, it makes it so hard. So th for me, that's a, the only weakness of The Hobbit is that at times I, I feel like it doesn't really know what type of film it's trying to be. Yeah, the Goblin King scene in particular kind of threw me for a loop because on one hand, you have the, the intense back and forth between Gollum and Bilbo. And then it cuts back to the the dwarves going through the goblin town three stooges style where they're throwing ladders on them and and cutting ropes and swing around and <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then the, and then the goblin king uh in particular i felt was more of a source of levity to kind of bring that balance of to the audience to give them some sort of breather when he challenged gandalf and he's like oh what are you going to do and he slashes him in the stomach and then the goblin king makes a line of uh, oh, that'll do it. it. It just, it seems out of place for the world because everyone... Very dis disnified, you could say. Exactly. Yeah. I, think, I, I was about to say something about the Goblin King, but I don't remember what it was. Um, Maybe we could just get into the scene on Rivendell and then, then we'll talk about the Goblin Kingdom, I think. So much is made of Rivendell because of its legacy of being such a important scene in The Lord of the Rings. It's where the fellowship is formed which is essentially the entire heart of the first film, The Fellowship of the Ring. 
is about this ability of all these different races to come together. The dwarves, the elves, the hobbits, and the men all agree we will work together for once to destroy this evil. And and so Rivendell in in The Hobbit, the book, is essentially just a a place to recuperate, a place to start afresh, to recover from the scene with the trolls in which which was changed to, actually maybe we should have talked about the scene with the trolls but uh the scene with the trolls is essentially um in the book it's quite similar to the film but it again there's a lot more action in the way that it's filmed there's more of a sense of danger there's more of a sense of yes the the fire is underneath the dwarves and they're actually being cooked and bilbo getting sneezed on and this desperation to to outwit them and and trick them in Tolkien's version it's very verbal i think it's all about wordplay and gandalf actually is the one that saves them in the book by imitating the voices of the trolls so that they start arguing with each other and so what happens is gandalf says something in the voice of one of the trolls which upsets the other trolls and upsets the troll who is being thought to have spoken because they're saying well i didn't say that and then they all start fighting which keeps them occupied enough for the sun to rise and to turn them into stone whereas in the film gandalf simply just makes an appearance and cracks this rock which allows the sunlight to burst in and therefore defeat the trolls what, what did you make of that as a, a rewrite did you prefer tolkien's version or did you like the more cinematic version well um i did think that Tolkien's version is very much less cinematic because it plays up Gandalf's trickery and intelligence more so his raw magic magical power that he possesses because in the books um, Gandalf isn't really treated as this uh, at least from what I can tell this this big powerful wizard he's more so a wise uh, guide that the dwarves have and in the movie they can't really escape the fact that Gandalf was the one that saved them. Um, it, it, but it's more so treated, I guess, as a spectacle because it, it was used to introduce the audience to a sliver of the danger that lies in Middle Earth and what the dwarves and the Hobbit is gonna f- are going to face um, in their journey. And it gives Bilbo his first trial of using his intelligence to his advantage because he he can't really do much to these trolls. He's about a he's he's like the size of their thumb. So he has to use his wits to his advantage, and he fails at it. He fails pretty pretty bad uh, two or three times. And Gandalf is the one that comes to his aid. This I, I want to say it served as a way narratively to place doubts in the dwarves' minds as to Bilbo's usefulness because Bilbo's the one that kind of attracted the trolls to them in the first place. And he was used as bait to get the dwarves to surrender and become all cooked up. Uh, f- from a narrative perspective and uh, story beat wise, in creating Bilbo's arc and his relationship with the dwarves, I think it's perfectly fine. But I do kind of wish they did play out Gandalf's intelligence as well as they did in the book. Yeah, again, I feel that there's a legacy issue from the Lord of the Rings in that Gandalf took on the Balrog fought this huge fire-wielding monster by himself and had is established as being a being with phenomenal power 
And actually, in The Hobbit, the book, he he is very limited in his ability to to use magic, and arguably, it could be that he is attempting to do this in order to bring out the strengths of the dwarves and Bilbo to to allow them to find their own resourcefulness. But yeah, it, something just doesn't add up as audiences that are familiar with the Lord of the Rings. We we see Gandalf as this extremely powerful warrior. And in, in The Hobbit, at least in the bit that's covered in this first film, the most action he really takes part in is, is setting those fires to divert the wolves towards the end. And again, it still seems like a very simple trick. He's just he's using his staff to, to make a bit of fire in, in the forest. It's not that anything that someone with a lighter couldn't do in, in the modern world, you know? Right. Yeah, Gandalf limits himself very much because he is, I, in a sense, uh, the guardian of people and he's the guide to these people. And he doesn't want, he can't do everything himself and he doesn't want to do everything himself, but he's going to try his best to influence and give inspiration to the people to fight because he is very capable of fighting. In the Battle of the Five Armies and in the Return of the King, he holds himself considerably well in in battle. And like you said, the Balrog, he he takes it on one on one, and uh, and gives it the fight of its life. Um, it's just in the Hobbit, because we're more centered on Bilbo. It will feel, it will feel like a weird change of pace and kind of a takeaway from the overall story if we had Gandalf partaking in these enormous feats of magic and power. I think there's a sense that the true magic of Gandalf is is hidden in the Hobbit. Uh, he's choosing how much he wants to reveal of his own power. Again, going back to that book that I mentioned by David Day, just on the the naming of the characters, Gandalf is essentially meant to come from an Icelandic name, Gandalfa, and it essentially the word Gand meant someone who had a magical power that was to to travel the stars, and Alf coming from the same word that elf comes from in English. So he's essentially this um, elf sorcerer or wizard who it's unclear what the limits of his power are, but what is clear is that he is some sort of force for good. He's on the side of good. He's he's on the elfish side where magic and trickery is something that is intended to be used for good as opposed to a sorcerer or a necromancer, as is, is mentioned in, in the film. There's the uh, the necromancer who will turn out to be a character that we're familiar with and that will be revealed in. I believe that's revealed in the second part, if I'm not mistaken. I, yeah, I think the Desolation of Smog and the Five Armies goes more in depth to what the uh, the Necromancer is because they have the whole side... They introduce the whole side plot in Unexpected Journey of Galadriel, Gandalf, uh, Elrond discovering the reemergence of the Necromancer and... Uh, it sets up a whole other side plot that has it really has nothing to do with Bilbo's arc in the movies, but is still important because it ties into the ring. At times, Peter Jackson's version of The Hobbit is trying to do two things, which is one, to tell the story of Bilbo, and additionally to elaborate and offer fan service to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Right, and you know, it it does make me think of how uh, the prequels in Star Wars were executed where 
they mainly existed not to flesh out these characters, but to set up the world and just set up the story that they told in the original trilogy. And I'm glad in The Hobbit they did they focused more on the more the smaller the smaller aspects with like Bilbo's character arc and and his more lighthearted journey. I'm glad they focused on that more than they did the whole plot of rediscovering uh, the necromancer um, and his conquest for the ring. Yeah, I, I do think it's potentially why the films had a less warm response than the original Lord of the Rings, where all of the side plots essentially come together to explain how Frodo and Sam will reach Mordor and, and destroy the ring. There's, there's a strong current in in those original films where everything leads to everything, even if it's about Boromir, who doesn't appear again after the, the first film, except in a couple of flashbacks. Boromir is quite strongly linked to the country of Gondor, which makes up for the major set piece towards the end of the trilogy. And sometimes it doesn't feel that way in The Hobbit. Sometimes it feels like, oh, it's trying to do a couple of different stories at the same time. Certain things are actually affecting The Lord of the Rings, and other things are affecting Bilbo. Right. And when you think about it, it's it's a lot to juggle at once. Because not only is the first movie setting up the plot of The Lord of the Rings, as well as Bilbo's journey, but it's also setting up Thorne's journey as well. Because Gandalf is not only mentoring Bilbo, keeping up with Radagast, talking about the Necromancer with Sauron, but he's also mentoring Thorin and making sure Thorin stays on track and doesn't give in to his own pride. It's a lot to juggle in one movie. And potentially they took on more than they needed to. Yeah. That is what I would argue. I, f I feel that if The Lord of the Rings had not been such an established trilogy that had had won a Best Picture Oscar, had made billions of dollars worldwide by this point, that it wouldn't have been so necessary to focus on how does this relate to Lord of the Rings. And so aside from the uh, the lack of tone, which, which we talked about in terms of such as the song with the Goblin King, which felt very out of place in, in, a, uh, in a scene like that, whereas the songs in, in Bag End with the dwarves feel like they can belong there, that everyone is just having a dinner. This is their culture. This is the way that they are. This is the way they experience the world. They are storytellers and, and songwriters. That fits. But then there's other parts where just the tone starts to feel a bit off in the Hobbit trilogy, which is not to say that I don't appreciate what it did. I truly do love the intention that this film set out with in, in terms of let's bring Bilbo's story to the big screen. That's the most iconic part of the, the story is always when it's focusing quite closely on Bilbo. And I think that would make a great segue into the scene with Gollum, because I think that is Bilbo's big scene. It's essentially the crux of the story that ties most into The Lord of the Rings without actually being too on the nose about it. In some ways, it's the first chapter of, of Frodo's story. It's how he comes to inherit the ring as well. It's, it, it all comes down to this chance meeting in the underworld that Bilbo has with Gollum. Right. The interaction with Gollum, it's, it's a reflection of what Bilbo could could become, because Gollum is the the picture of greed and the picture of what a what the Ring will do to someone, and what greed will do to someone if they give into it for prolonged periods of time um, and dedicate their lives to it. 
Bilbo is, in a sense, the picture of innocence. And I want to say it's it's him trying to escape just the worst the world has to offer. And it's him finally learning that he has what it takes and that Gandalf was right. And that he has to be at the end of the rope and the end of his wits to realize that. Really, at no point does Bilbo outright lie to Gollum in this entire interaction. He is completely honest with he tells him his name, where he's from. He avoids telling him what's in his pocket, but he doesn't outright say that, that he doesn't have the ring in his pocket. He stays true to essentially his own values, while at the same time taking what he's learned in his journey with the dwarves and using it to survive. So right before they actually travel to the mountain where they encounter the first the stone giants, which um one of the best uh, cinematic adaptations of a throwaway line in the book, I think, that was possible. I, I really love the character design of the stone giants. Apparently, it took the team at Weta Workshop a very long time to get those right because none of us have ever seen stone giants before. We don't actually know what they look like. No. So... Um, they were they were playing around with how much do we make them look like mountains, how much do we make them look humanoid, all of this stuff, and they really take on this great iconic design in the end. They feel huge and terrifying and dangerous. That was a throwaway line in in the story, and I again this is what this screenplay does very well, is it it takes those lines and turns it into danger, it turns it into action, it turns it into set pieces. And that really is Peter Jackson's take on on the Lord of the Rings universe, essentially, of, of Middle-earth. He, he loves looking at the crazy creatures. He loves looking at the great scenery, chooses all these amazing locations throughout New Zealand to recreate a sense of this majesty of Middle-earth. But right before they set off on that, um, that journey, Gandalf talks about why it's too collateral, I believe. He, he talks about why Bilbo Baggins... And that's not in the book, of course. Gandalf never explicitly states why he has chosen Bilbo. But through the power of the the adaptation process, the screenwriters choose to put some words into his mouth. And I really like what he said. He said, Saruman believes it's only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I have found it's the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Simple acts of kindness and love. Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps it's because I'm afraid and he gives me courage. And this is the line that he delivers right before we set up the scene in which Bilbo is going to confront Gollum and potentially lose his life, potentially is going to be killed over the the game of riddles he plays with him. And it completely ties into what Gandalf is saying. It's about these very simple acts that take place in that scene. There, This is not a scene in which Gollum comes chasing at Bilbo with his, his nails and his, his teeth open, you know, like trying to rip him to pieces. It starts out with Gollum coming over with this, this sense of curiosity of what is this person that's down in my lair? He, he's clearly gone a bit cracked at this point, you know? <laughs> yeah. I can't remember the exact amount in the Lord of the Rings lore, but I think it's about 400 years that Gollum's meant to have been deluded uh, due to his his uh, possession of the ring. So he's even forgotten he was a hobbit. He's forgotten that that's where he came from. He's forgotten what hobbits are. 
And Bilbo is forced to confront this. And it's actually in a very simple act, the this sense of they are going to confront each other with the riddle game. And then eventually there will be a a threat to his life, but still it's reduced to these two simple characters. You can feel free to drop some thoughts in here on just what this duality is of these two characters. I, I, I would say it's down to what Lord of the Rings represents, which is obsession and greed. Gollum is the picture of what Bilbo Baggins could become. And this is Bilbo's test. It's his test to use what failed before, which will be his intelligence and his his wittiness and his his snarkiness to survive. And I I find that uh interesting that they ran it with the the scene where they're in Goblin Town. Because here's Bilbo confronting this one little creature and he's it's it's a one-on-one conversation whereas with the dwarves they're faced with this entire army of goblins and they i noticed that when they're first talking to the goblin king before gandalf steps in is they multiple times they tried to talk him out of it and stall for time much like how bilbo attempted to do with the the trolls and they failed at it because the goblin king wasn't having any of it and they they didn't really get anywhere with that. And it wasn't until Thorne started outright challenging him and stating who his name was with that they started getting somewhere. Bilbo's scene with Gollum is in parallel to that, showing that they do need him because he is able to use these riddles and use his own quirky way to get them through the, some of these situations. Because he was able to outwit Gollum with the riddle since he had the ring in his pocket. And he was able to defeat Gollum in a battle of wits because when he won Gollum just completely broke down and it was further accentuated by the fact that he realized that Bilbo had stolen the ring from him well I I do think that the Goblin Town scene in the book it's very short and it is true the great goblin does talk to them and there is a song the kind of language that's used is like Slash them, beat them, bite them, gnash them, take them away to dark holes full of snakes. This kind of stuff does come up in that scene. But it just didn't, to me, it didn't feel authentic to the world that Peter Jackson had created for us. I feel like they should have toned down the goblin town scene and made it more akin to the Lord of the Rings. The sense that goblins and orcs talk their own language and they, they're very alien to us. They're very satanic and, and weird creatures The represent pure evil seeing too much of a light-hearted side to the goblins didn't didn't really translate and like you said it it really juxtaposes poorly with the fact that bilbo is facing this very dark and intimate scene in the underworld at the same time to have all this huge cgi set piece uh, up above and then the the real critical scene down below at the same time I guess in terms of a cinematic sense, he he wanted to do it to give the audience some action to satiate them because it was marketed as a fantasy adventure film. And when the climax is two characters essentially talking it out without any real big battle scene, I feel like he wanted he wanted to lengthen it more so that he could fill that audience's want of action, that big action sequence that they were all waiting for at the climax. Yeah, I I mean, you know, you're a commentator on video games, and so you know a lot more about kind of how 
people relate to this as well, but one of the problems with blockbuster film for me is that all of these big action set pieces always feel like they're on rails. Yes. When that platform collapses and is falling down into the chasm and all the dwarves are on top of it, you know they're going to survive. You know that anyone who's been in a minor car crash would know that you're going to get whiplash from just <laughs> just being hit at a very <laughs> yeah. reasonably slow pace for, for motor vehicles. And then you see this whole staircase falling down the side of, into, into rocks and bouncing off rocks and stuff, and, and everyone's just absolutely fine at the bottom. There, there's, there's always that sense of, are we really in a world where the characters can die at any moment? Or, or are we in a world where they're going to get by on rails? And so to me, that doesn't translate to the modern sensibilities of an audience now where I think audiences are very, if they want danger, they want to feel like they're in actual peril as opposed to just being whisked along on this roller coaster. You know, when you said on rails, that was the exact description I was looking. I couldn't think of the right phrase to say it to describe the battle scene in the Goblin Town. But on rails pretty much describes it spot on. I was going to say it had too much momentum in the sense that it's one of those those scenes where you're always moving forward. And like you said, they're never in real danger because what are they doing? They're swinging on these giant pendulums of wood and jumping off and then cut the rope right as the last person jumps off. Yeah, I, I can see it in like a fantasy fictional world. It keeps the audience on their toes. But at the same time, it's not believable in the world because in Lord of the Rings, uh, the end of the first movie is Thormir was getting struck down by the arrows and he died in battle. It feels like a very different scene. And this was this was pre Game of Thrones. And, you know, after Game of Thrones, there was this um, realization that everything that Sean Bean is in, he dies in. <laughs> Up until that point, in the way the Game of Thrones was marketed was Ned Stark is the main character. This is your guy. You're following Ned. And um, it, it actually was this beautiful parallel with The Lord of the Rings where Boromir did stand out as a very significant character and he gets killed off right at the end. And it was, again, because of greed. He had become susceptible to the ring and it he lost his place in the fellowship as a result. Frodo wasn't, wasn't able to trust him again. And he makes the right decision right at the end where he decides to sacrifice himself to save the other, the other hobbits. And so the Lord of the Rings, the first, the fellowship of the ring leaves this really profound effect on everyone. The sense that this is not on rails. Actually, one of your main characters just died. What are they going to do? The fellowship is disbanded. Frodo is going off by by well with Sam, um, but essentially the two of them by themselves. They've lost Gandalf. They've lost the power of magic. They've lost Legolas and his his amazing abilities with the bow and Gimli, who's this this strong dwarf, and Aragorn, who is such a such a powerful warrior. It's this sense of oh everything's gone wrong now. How are they going to repair this in the next film? Whereas The Hobbit, yes, okay, it's a more lighthearted film, but it also made it feel like, well, you know, nothing bad is going to happen. Every single one of those dwarves that is in danger in Goblin Town and then uh, when the wolves, the wargs, as they're called in the book, uh, chase after them, 
there's never a sense that any of them are actually going to die. The only sense that we ever have in, in the story of The Hobbit that anyone is in danger is when Gollum meets Bilbo. Yeah, and it's not done as contrastingly, I suppose, in... The stakes are much higher in the Battle of the Five Armies, and they do stay more true to the book in that sense. But yeah, the the ending for The Fellowship of the Ring was heartbreaking because it started off so hopeful as The Hobbit did, but in contrast, it ended in a in a devastating way. And whereas The Hobbit, every bad situation, at least in the first movie, they're saved by Gandalf coming in at the very last second to. Uh, save them three uh, i want to say about three times in the movie three or four times in the movie this happens and it kind of it takes away from the the whole drama a bit which is why the the scene with Gollum is so invigorating because no one knows where bilbo is he doesn't know where he is and gandalf isn't here to save him because he's too busy dealing with the the goblins and the dwarves higher up and it's bilbo finally on his own without someone to to save him and that's when he learns courage i do want to read a little passage from tolkien here just a paragraph from riddles in the dark which is the name of if you're not familiar uh, listening at home this is the name of the scene in which bilbo meets Gollum. it's also what they called the scene in the film if you are going through the blu-ray menu to navigate to it it's called riddles in the dark which I don't know. I just love the it, just the title of it. Actually, it's very it's very Tolkien to focus on that aspect of the scene. But here's the quote I wanted to read: Deep down here by the dark water lived old Gollum, a small, slimy creature. I don't know where he came from, nor who or what he was. He was Gollum, as dark as darkness, except for two big, round, pale eyes in his thin face. He had a little boat, and he rode about quite quietly on the lake for lake it was, wide and deep and deadly cold. He paddled it with large feet dangling over the side, but never a ripple did he make. Not he. He was looking out of his pale lamp-like eyes for blind fish, which he grabbed with his long fingers as quick as thinking. He liked meat too, goblin he thought good when he could get it, but he took care they never found him out. He just throttled them from behind if they ever came down anywhere about near the edge of the water while he was prowling about. They seldom did, for they had a feeling that something very unpleasant was lurking down there, down at the very roots of the mountain. This is this is a kind of writing that traumatizes the the nine year old who's reading it, you know, but but you also then go away with this beautiful, vivid image of who Gollum is, I think, for the rest of your life if you read this when you're a child. And then obviously the way he was brought to life on the screen by uh by Peter Jackson's team, Andy Serkis as the, as the main actor, and then obviously all of the CGI work that went into creating uh, Gollum, the motion capture, and the character design. He is just so iconic and terrifying because of that that sense that he is so he. When you're describing him, he sounds so evil, and then at the heart of him, there's that sense of, oh, but he used to be like the other hobbits he was Smeagol he was he was a normal hobbit until the ring came into his path I'm going to be honest the first time I was ever introduced to the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit was when I was about six or seven my dad and I attended this this meeting where 
they were analyzing the scene in the uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, I think I believe it was from the Two Towers where they first meet Gollum, and uh, just how terrifying this character looked. Uh, I was I was horrified, and I was scared to even watch anything related to the Lord of the Rings for for quite a bit after that, just because the the impact this character left on me and his image. But you know, as I got older, I got over it and I was able to appreciate what the character represented. And I believe for the movie, they did go through quite a bit of changes, changing his character design and making him true to the book, but still something that was visually striking. Yeah, he he has a cutesy element to him in Peter Jackson's imagining. And there is this constant in the the split personality he has as well, um, which plays a more prominent role in the Lord of the Rings in, in this battle between Gollum and Smeagol within the same the same body vying for control of his mind. That comes up. He's quite cute at times in the Lord of the Rings. You're reminded of the famous scene where he asks, what's Tater's precious? There's this kind of innocence to him and, and cuteness, which I think was actually the right thing to do because it it does allow us to feel sympathy for him eventually. Initially, he's terrifying. And one of the powerful things about what Tolkien did is because he's writing, as an author, he's only giving us the information that he wants to give us. He can paint this very scary picture in our mind of this creature lurking in the underworld and throttling the goblins uh, to eat them and stuff like that. But there is another, there is another side to him. There is a, a very... Uh, playful side to him that becomes this this iconic character that people love to imitate and and quote and and he's so memorable in that sense as well which could have been lost if he'd been made into just a generic horror character this this terrifying beast the animated version from the 1980s depicted him as this this fish trout like creature with arms and legs that was like more purplish than pale and it doesn't really capture the whole essence of what the character is because the character is supposed to be a hobbit that was just completely decimated by his obsession with the with the one ring and they did picture that in the way that he kind of sulks about and walks uh, on his hands and his feet and just his crouching nature in general to make the viewer somewhat uneasy about him and not trust him. But at the same time, like you said, the cutesy element, like the big eyes are supposed to draw our sympathy, especially in that scene where Bilbo contemplates killing him with a sword was to draw out that sympathy. Yeah. That's so well written for the screen. That bit is so well written mentioning just how lost he looks, how he's his, his lips are quivering. His eyes are almost tearing up. I think that's brilliant how they, conveyed a reason to be sympathetic for Gollum just purely visually you know, there's no there's no need for any dialogue here there's no need for exposition saying oh I used to be a hobbit once or anything like that Bilbo doesn't know that he just sees and intuitively he feels the right thing to do is not to slash this guy's head off or slit his throat the right thing for me to do is just get out of here maybe he'll take care of himself in the future but I'm not I'm not going to be the judge. I'm not going to condemn this this creature to death. And that's when he learns the courage that Gandalf was talking about, the one to take a life and one to spare one. That is when he, he decides to spare Gollum. 
and realize that you know there's evil in the world, but I don't have to be one of those evil people. And I noticed that they, they did play a bit of the Shire theme in the background. He's making that decision to kind of show this is his Baggins side taking over in the, the sense of duality. Yeah, exactly. His nature, his upbringing, it's all there. If the the good-hearted nature of the hobbits is is what makes them the the right people when gandalf needs to find someone who can destroy the ring it's going to be frodo because he's from that family and bilbo is the right person to look after the ring until it becomes time to destroy it he knows when it's right and wrong to take a life exactly that was his arc for the movie was was not giving into the fear of what oh what could Gollum become in the future or I should strike him down if I want to escape this place he was able to let go of that fear and like you said not take the responsibility of life on himself and to move forward with what his mission was one thing I find really interesting about just the thought processes that go into the writing of The Hobbit is that The Hobbit is essentially this myth. It's, it's based on old Germanic and Anglo-Saxon ideas, and it's what Tolkien wanted to recreate. But at the same time, it has this really strong Darwinian perspective of the world, that things evolve, that things change over time to adapt to their environment, to adapt to their purposes and needs. And so Gollum is this Darwinian creature. He's, he's an evolution of hobbits in, in the wrong direction that lives underground and is, is completely pale from not having seen the sunlight for hundreds of years. Has, his eyes have grown bigger. His teeth are falling out but have become sharpened. His fingers are long and adapted to creeping and crawling around in the darkness and, and fishing and, and all this stuff. And that's just something that possibly couldn't have happened if a, an earlier writer had tried to write a story like this. You need those concepts of Darwin, of, of the evolution of, of yeah. planet Earth, and then put that back into the fantasy and see what happens. There is a, just almost a sense within Middle-earth mythology that in some way all of these different races, the elves, the dwarves, the hobbits, and the humans, must in some way come from the same place, but have all chosen to go in in different directions over so long that they've become different groups right they're all of humanoid nature so you can you can definitely infer that Gollum in particular was interesting just because he lived longer than a hobbit should have because of his possession of the ring kind of giving the the viewer a, a taste of the kind of power the ring possesses that it's so mysterious you can't really quantify it but if someone does possess it they they're able to have these supernatural abilities and it's kind of shown in how long Gollum lives. Yeah, and then that comes up for Bilbo again in the start of The Lord of the Rings. It's commented how young he looks. Uh, Gandalf looks at him almost disapprovingly saying that he looks quite young and it's because of the same effect from the ring has been keeping him youthful. Right, and Gandalf already knew why he was so young because he did see Bilbo when Bilbo emerged from the cave he did see Bilbo slip that ring back into his pocket. So he was fully aware. He just, he chose not to outright challenge Bilbo unless Bilbo was very against giving him the ring. There's one piece of writing that I slightly disagree with, and it's only a minor 
a minor disagreement, but when Bilbo escapes from, from Gollum and he goes to find the dwarves again, they are talking about him and how they should have left him behind in the book. Bilbo puts on the ring to sneak past Balin, who is on watch protecting the, the dwarves' camp. And he creeps all the way in and they then takes the ring off to reveal to them that he actually is an expert burglar, that he can trick even their watchmen and march right up to their camp if, they, if they're not paying attention. And I just feel it's unfortunate that that was taken out because I think that really summed up the fact that he had established himself in the thief role by doing that, by convincing them that he was capable and in the film, it just becomes slightly weaker. It's just a sense of, oh, well, he made it out of the mountain by himself, so he must be good at this. I, I think I can see why they omitted that from the film or changed it was because they didn't want to paint Bilbo as this dishonest individual who is using the ring for his own selfish gain. Because, yeah, like you said in the movie, he just uses it as a way to say, oh, I just got by, by, by the orcs and now I'm here. In the movie, it's not played off as him taking advantage of the ring, more so because he he says it himself at the very end of the movie when uh, when they're on top of the big rock. He says, "I'm not an adventurer. I'm not even a burglar." So in the movie, it takes a completely different direction. I think by omitting that scene, I instead they took the direction where Bilbo accepts that he can do these things, but it is not who he is, and he's not a burglar. Whereas in the book. He is desperately trying to prove himself that he's a burglar. So just the closing scene, there's, there's major changes in the ending of the story that An Unexpected Journey tells. Primarily, it's that these wolves in the book are essentially just wild animals that, that converge and the dwarves have accidentally stumbled into their, their home. And the, the, the goblins were planning to meet up with them to, to carry out a raid. And basically, it's just a case of being in a, the wrong place at the wrong time, which, again, doesn't really make sense in a film. You, you need the characters, their reasons for being in certain locations to actually make sense. So instead, the, the goblins come chasing out of the mountain after their king has died, and they, they do want revenge on the dwarves. And it turns into this huge set piece in which Gandalf calls for help from the eagles, who, in Tolkien's version, the eagles are basically just flying around looking <laughs> looking for what's going on and then happen to save all of them. So that, that, again, makes more sense. It's a character-driven decision that Gandalf calls for help. He's showing the powers that he really possesses. But again, the ending does feel a little bit like, okay, it was all on rails and they do escape. And it's, it's more of a sense of, oh, we're trying to set up that more stuff is going to happen in the next two films. So come back and watch what will happen next, as opposed to necessarily having this more climactic ending that the first Lord of the Rings film had, where we genuinely felt anything could happen in the next scene as soon as we return to the world of the Two Towers. Yeah, I think they rely more on spectacle and how interesting can we make this shot instead of the actual tension of the scene because I, I i was so anxious watching gandalf hold his staff uh with the dwarves dangling on it for an extended period of time without the staff breaking i don't know it, it just made it a little bit unbelievable to me but i i do think that i love this movie movie to death but 
I think that the ending is the weakest out of all six movies. Because there's the decision Bilbo makes to save Thorin and being able to fight and pro- finally prove himself to Thorin. But other than that, um, how they get out of the situation isn't m- really the decision of Bilbo or Thorin or the rest of the dwarves. It's the eagles coming in to save them, which we did already see at the very end of the saga. It's, it is true to the book in a sense, and there's always that difficulty. Where do you, where do you step away from the book and say, okay, I know Tolkien wrote it like this, but this isn't necessarily setting up a great ending if we're going to split the book up this way. Yeah. Same thing with the Goblin Kingdom. So it feels like a little bit of weakness is allowed to seep into the story at times, but it doesn't take away from what The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey is about. And yes, this is a screenwriting podcast. We talk a lot about story, character, lines of dialogue, the themes, everything like that. But one of the things that The Hobbit actually is as a film series is it's this remarkable experiment in CGI and prosthetics and uh, scenery design and character design and costume and all of these things that really make it a joy to watch. And it's, it's hard to describe verbally just what it's like to watch this visually, especially on a big screen when it was first released in its high frame rate and that mix of CGI with real world imagery, the beautiful scenery of New Zealand, which is elevated by the music and the familiar score. There's just so much to it that it's just in a way lost if we only talk about the story because it is such a visual spectacle of a film. But again, you know, visual spectacles are not enough. We do need a film with a gripping and engaging story and characters. Otherwise, we're not going to be interested in in it, no matter how beautiful it is. Right. It's about striking a balance between what we want to accomplish visually and what we want to stay true to from a written level. And it is difficult when Tolkien kind of writes the the screenwriters into a corner here. At the time, the, the Hobbit is a very lighthearted fantasy book and the eagles coming in to save them isn't is is not a problem because this is the middle point of the book with a film you have to consider that yes it's a trilogy but each film has to be able to stand on its own as its own independent uh work of art that justifies its own existence because otherwise if this movie did not have a coherent arc or it's or a ending that felt satisfying from a narrative perspective it would have gotten slammed like a lot and it had to justify being a three-parter by making the scene a little bit more different in the sense that it had to give Bilbo something to do so it felt like this would be a fitting conclusion to the third to the first act i think those are really good uh closing comments so i think we can finish up there yeah, I do look forward to at some point in the future tackling the other the other films in this series. I do have a great fondness for Tolkien's writing and and what Peter Jackson attempted to do with with these films. But I'll see how how that works out if uh, <laughs> there's so many great films that I want to cover on the 21st rewrite. <laughs> but just to in summary, I would just like to say thank you Tommy for for joining us for this week stepping into the big shoes of the the co-host for for the week oh thank you thanks for having me it's i 
this has been fun. <laughs> I've had a lot of fun uh, going into the nitty gritty and analyzing the uh, what the movie stands for and how it translates from the book to the movie and get, having an excuse to watch uh, Unexpected Journey another time. That's always a plus. Sure. And if people uh, want to hear more from you, they can check out the Cube Command podcast if they are big fans of video games or you, you cover anime as well, I think, and, and certain comic book films and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, we are primarily a uh, gaming podcast, as my podcast was named after uh, the GameCube, my favorite console. We do branch out into other pop culture things. We do. Uh, we started reviewing animated movies, superhero flicks, more lighthearted uh, stuff that we can just kind of sit back and joke around about. So it was it, it was really refreshing coming on here and and analyzing it more in depth um, than I do on my podcast. Yeah, my show is anything but lighthearted, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had I had a good time on here, and if you want to check out my show, you can listen to me on really any great podcast app or find my website www.cubecommand.com uh, where we post all our episodes all right well thanks again yeah thanks for having me thanks again for listening i know this was a long one so congratulations on making it to the end if the show is helpful to you and you would like to support us, please share the episodes on social media or recommend it to your friends. That would be really great. I'll see you in two weeks. Bye for now.